Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. It is a This Month in Birding week, so the discussion runs a little bit on the longer side, so I'm going to keep this part, this intro part short, and just congratulate the listeners who correctly answered last week's trivia questions and won copies of the new ABA Field Guide to the Birds of Hawaii. Congratulations to Scott Clark, Aaron Klanderman, Kyle Shanta, Elizabeth Trott, Cody Delano, and Max Laura. Those books are on their way. Look for them in the mail. As to the answers, I asked for the four species of bird that are native breeders in both Hawaii and Delaware, where the ABA's headquarters is located. I gave a few hints. I said that all four have subspecies that are unique to Hawaii, but still considered conspecific with the mainland birds. So the birds that I had in mind when I asked this question were common gallinule, which is Alae Ula in Hawaiian, uh, black-necked stilt, Aeo, black-crowned night heron, Auku'u, and Pueo, or short-eared owl, which is a rare breeder in the marshes in northern Delaware, and indeed on, on much of the east coast of the U.S. Not a lot of people know that. So those were the four I was thinking of. There turned out to be three more that you could make a fair argument should be included. Uh, Pied-billed grebe, certainly breeds in Delaware, was a former breeder in Hawaii, but not for a couple of decades now. When I was talking about that fifth species, that was the one I was thinking of. But as I discovered, least tern is another in recent years. It is a regular breeder on the Big Island. Still not annual in Delaware, though it does breed in some years. Again, you can make the argument that it, it belongs. And blue-winged teal, which is another one of those rare Delaware breeders and has bred on at least three occasions in Hawaii. Uh, definitely not a frequent breeder, uh, so I think that's kind of stretching it, but because of the way I worded the question, arguably counts. Anyway, thanks to all of you who wrote in, and congrats to the prize recipients. On the show, it's This Month in Birding. I have Jody Allaire. I have Jenny Duberstein. I have Sean Milnes. We talk about a lot of bird stuff. All that after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of August 2020. Not a lot to report here on the precipice of land bird migration in the ABA area, but I do have a couple first records to note from Utah, where a cerulean warbler was reported in Utah County, though I don't know much more about it other than the very little that was reported on the Utah Rare Birds listserv. So take that However you like, uh, cerulean warbler is one of the rare eastern vagrants in the western part of the continent, and though it has been recorded in several surrounding states, including Colorado and Wyoming, there are a dozen or so records for California as well, it had not been reported, recorded in Utah. Another comes from Saskatchewan, where a tropical kingbird was found near Saskatoon. I'm pretty sure this is a first provincial record, though perhaps someone can confirm that for me. There aren't many, I would imagine. In any case, Tropical Kingbird is perhaps the Tyrannus flycatcher most inclined to wander. It is not uncommon for Tropical Kingbirds to wander up the Pacific coast in late summer, so it seems probable that this is one of those near nearer birds, but that's just speculation. Those are the highlights for the week. As always, for a more complete look at all the rare birds seen across the U.S. and Canada, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning at aba.org slash rba. You can also go to our Rare Bird Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash aba rare or follow us on Twitter at aba bird alert. It is the last Thursday of the month, and that means it's time once again for this month in birding. 
My esteemed panel this month has a bit more of a Western bent, significantly pulling the mean location of our panelists a little bit closer to the Mississippi River, at least. Um, You're welcome to our friends and listeners further west. So I'll just introduce him by alphabetical order. He is an American Birding Podcast alum, a virtual bird club veteran, and our first Canadian panelist. You can find him on social media at Jody Allaire. It is from Alberta, Jody Allaire. Welcome back, Jody. Thanks for having me. She is the ABA's Young Birder Liaison, a dynamo for conservation in the Southwest, coming from Tucson, Arizona, with the Twitter handle at Canicus. Am I pronouncing that right? Hello, Jenny Duberstein. Uh, hello. <laughs> um, almost right. Canicas. It's the Spanish Canicas. word for marbles, which has always been one of my favorite words. I was going to ask. Yeah. All right. Now I know. And uh, back once more to this month in birding, uh, one of the hosts of the Foul Mounts podcast at Sean Milnes on Twitter. It is, of course, Sean Milnes. Welcome back, Sean. Thanks for having me back. All right. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, The biggest news of the month, I think, is the name change, the English common name change of uh, McCown's Longspur. It is McCown's Longspur no more. It is now Thick-Billed Longspur. And um, we can talk a little bit about, you know, the dynamics of how that change came to be. I know that's something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast. So I don't want to go too deep into it if people may be tired of it. <laughs> but uh, Thick-Billed Longspur, the name itself, are you positive on it? Jody, you've probably seen more Thick-Billed Longspurs than just about any of us since you're up in Alberta. What do you think about this name? They're a long spur with a thick bill, right? It's a, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not a bad descriptor. Like, if I'm being honest, it, it wasn't my favorite of the potential options, you know? Um, and I think we've listed them before, like prairie long spur, bay wing long spur. But, you know, bottom line, I'm, I'm good with it. I think, and obviously, it's a, it's a step in the right direction, and I'm ready to move on and let's start taking care of some other ones. Yeah, totally agree. I think that one of the, I don't remember where, who said this, I read a, a, chain on Twitter where somebody was sort of speaking up in defense of thick-billed longspur as a choice mm-hmm. because it was something that didn't depend on a description of the plumage of the male. Mm-hmm. And I, I really appreciated that because I do think that a lot of the descriptive names are based on sort of the brighter, more obvious plumage. Um, and this is useful regardless of whether you're looking at a, a male or a female. I, I, yeah, I agree. I kind of like thick-billed longspur's name, or at least I, like, I don't hate it. <laughs> Which might be, you know, maybe that's that's what we're going for. Maybe that's enough. Yeah. I was super it. hopeful for bay winged, but I've never seen one, <laughs> so I have no authority on how it should be named. And thick build certainly rolls off the tongue. And like Jenny was saying, I'm I'm happy that they went with this sort of an easy one to to describe either male or female. So it's nice to see that happening a little bit more often. So I think it was a um. I was definitely a birder who sees them in the winter. And I like Jenny, I remember that Twitter thread and I, I wish I could you know, call back and give that person credit. But yeah, it was basically, you know, you're looking at a flock of long spurs on the winter grounds and you're trying to pick out the the thick build one from say, you know, Lapland and chestnut collard and whatnot. And, uh, you know, the thick bill is something that it does stand out a little bit, assuming you can get a good look at them and they're not like flying away. In which case, like white tailed long spur would have probably been a better a better name. I was actually going to say uh, white-tailed longspur. It, it would have been an interesting choice as well. I didn't see that mentioned too often, but because that is the impression. You know, they, they're such an amazing bird. They're actually one of my favorite birds out here on the uh, Canadian prairies. They're certainly a lot harder to find now than they were even 10 years ago up here. The same could be said for chestnut collard. 
Um, so there's there's definitely some conservation issues affecting well both longspurs in the in the North American prairies. But uh, thick-billed, you know, the name is good. The bird is spectacular, and I highly encourage people to to try to get out and see them because they are really just a thing of beauty out on the prairies. Jody, what is your thought about all these uh, birds being named for mostly Americans <laughs> as a Canadian birder? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that's you know that's an interesting point. Uh, you know, I, I suppose I don't I don't think too much into uh, you know whether they're named after Americans. I, I certainly have strong feelings about getting rid of honorific bird names just across the board. I think that's to, to me that the time has come um, to, to make that change happen. But uh, yeah, there's certainly, a, you know, a lot of our birds that we see are, are named after Americans <laughs> or are named after American locations, you know, I think like, yeah. Conne- like Connecticut warbler just, you know, is, is, is hilarious in my mind. You know, when I think of uh, <laughs> such a Northern boreal, you know, species um, uh, you know, yeah, it would be great to have, Location names, I suppose, that would be more representative of their breeding grounds. But you yeah. know, the bottom, the bottom line is, though, I think the the low hanging fruit is is getting rid of honorific bird names, and and we can quibble about you know descriptors <laughs> and and all that later on. But like, let's take care of that first, and then we can have those kind of debates. But yeah, why not Manitoba warbler? I mean, come on. Oh we yeah, literally see them in <laughs> one spot in Connecticut in the fall it's like one <laughs> one definitive location where we can find them one time a year it's oh the question is where did you shoot him that's the real <laughs> question because that's where you have to get the name from <laughs> right no i was just thinking that like with the the scientific name of red-tailed hawk and where the the type specimen coming from jamaica and yeah yeah that is weird uh-huh yeah i will say one thing about this whole name thing like i, I did not really think a ton about honorific eponym type names until I you know maybe about 10 years ago it's nice to be able to uh, make these changes even if it is something as sort of banal as thick built bunks I think anybody that's listening knows where I stand <laughs> on this whole <laughs> bird names uh, situation <laughs> if you yeah. follow me on Twitter um, but man come on just the the excuses are getting really really tiresome we yeah. Jody said it everybody's saying it just get rid of them <laughs> it's yeah. seriously Townsend, you're next. Yeah, we're coming for you, Townsend. <laughs> like John Jerk. Yeah, for real. <laughs> you know, I'll start off by saying, what does this list all have in common? I'm just going to list a few things just off the top of my note sheet here. Drake, insulin, hockey, the Canada arm, Margaret Atwood, butter tarts, winter finch <laughs> forecast. <laughs> <laughs> All great contributions uh, to culture from uh, from Canada. That is correct. That is <laughs> that is correct. Ron Pitaway's uh, winter finch forecast, I think, has just been just a yeah. wonderful and amazing contribution to to birding culture. Uh, and I think it's it's made a real impact, you know, on a lot of people. You know, it's got a long history. Ron Pitaway, uh, who's an Ontario birder, is now you know retiring from doing this, but he started it. 21 years ago, the first one was in 1999. And, uh, and really, the, the crux of it, for readers who don't know what the winter finch forecast is, the crux of it is making predictions on eruptions based on food availability up in the, up in the northern boreal forest. It was really focused on Ontario to, to start off with, and it certainly is still Ontario-focused, but it does have uh, ramifications for the uh, really northeastern North America, including the northern northern states, and uh, and really actually underpins the importance of looking at a landscape in its birds not defined by a political boundary. 
you know, and I sort of love that, you know, these birds are tied into food and habitat and not political boundaries. And I think the winter finch forecast, you know, did that really well. Uh, Ron Pitaway announced uh, not too long ago that he is retiring from doing the winter finch forecast, um, you know, much to the uh, the shock of so many people it was on, a on social media. pouring of grief oh, on social media. <laughs> no, there really was. And because we all love it and, uh, and not for the pension of being dramatic, um, you know, not, not too long after um, uh, they, Ron announced that Tyler Hoare, another really fantastic Ontario birder who has been involved as part of Ron Pitaway's sort of collection team. He's taking over the reins and will be doing the um, winter finch forecast going forward. So that's really, really exciting. Yeah, I'm glad they saved it. Like everyone else, like I've followed Ron Pitaway's or looked forward to Ron Pitaway's forecast every September or so when he puts it out. Like I had no idea the network that he had created to come up with that. It is it is like this who's who of birders and foresters in northern Manitoba and Saskatchewan and like all these crazy places that he's getting information from and synthesizing it into this report, which shows, you know, almost eerie predictive ability. No, you know, it's amazing. It's you know, it's really like pure community science effort yeah. right like it's it's tapping in i think it's somewhere like i think it's the number somewhere over 30 in terms of the number of people uh he reaches out to and gets people to pass along you know the state of seed crops and cone crops and uh, what type of finches are around uh, when there's lots of food up north those birds tend to stay up north because they're really connected to mm. their food source and when there's a drop in food abundance up in the boil forest those birds travel south and east and west um to find food Right. So it's a really I think for a lot of us and me included, uh, keeping tabs on this for years, it really helped build that connection between, you know, birds and their food and their habitat. And I really think it made a lot of us better birders. I think we owe Ron a lot. He's created excitement and anticipation every year, you know, putting out the winter finch forecast. And I've got, you know, memories of actually my high school class going to the Frost Center in Dorset, Ontario, where Ron was teaching at the time and, and got to know him when I was young and, and being influenced a lot by these, these, some of these amazing birders I was just getting to know. So really, fan, really fantastic guy. He's almost like a person that is almost bigger than life, like a Ken Kaufman or a David Sibley. Um, when you think of Ron Pitaway, Jenny, like who do you, who do you imagine? Because I see like some, like some guru sitting on a mountain taking measurements of like the cone crops. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I had, this is perhaps an impact of me having lived either in Northwest Mexico or Southeastern Arizona for the last 20 years. <laughs> I had never heard of this, this, really? uh, I had never heard of the winter finch. Uh, forecast. Oh, East coast yeah. bias, East coast bias. Yeah. Well, so, but then when I saw, <laughs> um, the bird Twitter kind of blowing up and Facebook with, like you said, these really, um, sort of touching, um, outpourings of grief at the, the loss <laughs> of this contribution to science and the birding the ornithological and birding community um i looked into it a little bit more and it's i mean it's fascinating it's it's amazing and just listening to jody describe you know kind of how it's shifted and changed the way that that we look at studying and understanding these sorts of things and as somebody who i know nate you described me as the the aba young birder liaison but that's just evenings and weekends in my volunteer mm -hmm. time um my day job is as a, a biologist uh coordinating a binational bird and bird habitat conservation program called the Sonoran Joint Venture. And so, you know, we think a lot about the need to 
sort of exclude political borders as much as possible when thinking about mm-hmm. conservation. And it's sort of cool to think about this as sort of, uh, you know, uh, one piece in building the foundation for the work that I do. Are you seeing redbreast and nuthatches already, Sean, since you're up there in the northeast part of the part of the continent? We're seeing reports on the listserv pretty much yeah. every day um, and from all around the state. I have to say that there was like this really small moment of horrible like realization of what what was happening with him retiring you know right before the announcement was made that there was a you know going to be a successor the the winter finch forecast sort of like for anybody in like connecticut especially is going to predict how good of a winter we're going to have whether we're going to be frozen on beaches (laughs) with scopes or we're actually going to be able to go look for like a really interesting bird for a little yeah. while. So, and we're sitting up, in a nice hot, warm house. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, we like evening grow speaks what the last uh, eruption for them was just a couple of years ago. And it was, you know, people were just sitting at back windows, drinking coffee and counting the gross peaks coming in. Yeah. That's so rare for us at this point. It didn't used to be, but it is certainly is now. And it's, you know, there was like this really big pang. You could feel it from the whole state radiating. (laughs) Like, oh no, what are we going to do? So I think it can't be understated how kind of amazing an accomplishment this was for him to do. Like this type of predictive science and predictive birding, Mm -hmm. even doing it 20 years ago when things like BirdCast and things like eBird were, you know, really in its infancy. And as as Ron, you know, I think self-described it, it's an art rooted in science doing these... uh, winter finch forecast and it's again real, real props to ron jenny do you want to talk now 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 yes i would love to talk about this that's actually maybe the first thing we can talk about i saw somebody put a poll on twitter about how do you pronounce naoc <laughs> and there were four different options um and one of them was naoc and one was naoc and one was naoc and I don't remember what the first one was. I've always said NAOC, the North American yeah, no, Ornithological, Ornithological yeah. Conference. Um, yeah, this took place last week. It was supposed to um, take place in person in Puerto Rico. And of course, as a result of COVID-19, they had to very rapidly shift all of their plans to put things together to host this online. And um, as a result... Um, a lot of people were able to participate who wouldn't normally have been able mm-hmm. to, including me. Um, they got enough outside funding, NAOC did, that registration was ridiculously reasonable. It was $50 to mm-hmm. register, and it was free for students, and they had all kinds of scholarships for participants from Latin America and other um, underrepresented countries, and, and they really, really made it accessible I saw somebody else describe it as they were describing it to their four-year-old kid and they said it was a bird party. (laughs) And that's a lot what it felt like. You know, there were sessions. I'm, of course, in Arizona, so Pacific Coast time starting at seven o'clock every morning. Sessions and keynotes and workshops and um, opportunities to interact. They really tried um, sometimes with more success than others, but (laughs) it was it was really, really impressive um, the way that they were able to make this into I think a really powerful and successful example of what online conferences can look like. The other thing that I will just say, so this is every four years this happens, there are sort of nine major ornithological societies um, that host this. 
And if you were not able to participate, they have they recorded everything. And so for the yeah. next month, I don't know what the cost is, but considering the initial cost to register was only $50 maximum, I, I think it's probably very reasonable. Anybody can pay this nominal fee and access all of the recordings, which is which is great. Certainly, there's something to be said for having these sort of things in person and meeting people in person and networking in person. But boy, I sure hope that going forward that there is a an aspect of this that continues. Um, certainly they've built the framework for it. Why not use it every time they end up doing it? I agree that, I mean, that of course the talks and the plenaries and everything like that was all amazing, but the pieces that it was the details that, mm-hmm. that made it so special. They put up, a, they created a special Slack space that had a whole bunch of channels for different topics one of the things at the NAOC is they have a, they call it the bird band jam. And so on the last night, those of us who are also musicians often, you know, get together and play music. And so the, John Alexander from Klamath Bird Observatory sort of rallied all of us and had people posting connections to videos. Student mentor meetups are a big part of this, you know, kind of providing opportunities for early career people or people that are looking to, you know, soon to be in the job market to connect with folks and ask questions. And they provided space for that to happen. Um, there was some great storytelling events. There was a, a contest for bird imitations that was both hilarious and um, unbelievably realistic. The, the man who won, it was incredible. Yeah, it was. What's going to stop people from just holding up their phone to the microphone, though? No, no, no. It was a video. <laughs> they were videos. And, and then. The, the man who won, it was, um, he's from Guatemala, I think. It was, uh, he, he gave us like a live performance after he had been named the winner. Huh. <laughs> the bigger thing for me, like just thinking about it, I, I agree that I think that there are lots of benefits to meeting in person. But I think that I feel like where I am now is that the benefits to the accessibility, the, the way this made NAOC more accessible to so many more people, there are about 3,000 people participated, mm. that might outweigh the benefits to meeting face-to-face. I think that's sort of where I am right now. Yeah. Would you guys, Sean or Jody, would you go to something like this if it were available online all the time? 100%. Yeah. I mean, for me, the cost would be the most restrictive element of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't afford to fly to Puerto Rico and pay, pay for everything else that goes on or wherever they're going to hold it the next time around. But to have it online it's perfect. I mean, $50 to have access to those kinds of resources is pretty, is pretty well worth it considering what we spend on other things for birding as it is, you know? So, (laughs) you know, I, 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 the outpouring of support on Twitter for all of the, you know, the people that I follow for the, for the same reasons I would go to the conference was, was amazing. And it 100% like makes me want to do it the next time around, especially if they're going to do it in this format. So. Yeah, I would agree. I really, I really like this type of format. I'm, I'm a total convert in terms of uh, these conferences being done online and, you know, like, and, and some have been, you know, they've had Twitter conferences. I know the IBIS have been, have been some, sponsoring you know twitter conferences on uh, scientific conferences over twitter mm-hmm. but i think these are great because it can allow more people it, it's reducing the barriers whether those are economic barriers or you just you just can't take that time off to go travel uh i really like that it's that it's opening it up for more people to participate 
And, uh, and I think that's a great positive thing going forward. I hope we have more of these. If any of the listeners are interested, you can go to naocbirds.org and find out information about how to, how to access the, the recordings. I'm sorry that I don't know how much it costs, but I assume that it's extraordinarily reasonable. We'll put the link. We'll put the link in the show notes for sure. Oh, man. Um, are you sick of hearing me talk about bad names in ornithology? <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, National Audubon, David Yarnold, dropped a bomb on us with an article and or a couple of articles, realistically, like right called one. The first one I'm talking about, those revealing the past to create the future. Mm-hmm. pretty much says, well, <laughs> things that we didn't know about or things we weren't paying attention to are coming to light now. And, and, and we're, we're going to reckon with that Audubon national Audubon's doing a, did a great job. Um, the article, the, the whole premise of it was a, to make national Audubon accountable for the name that is on their society he, they literally said we expect to be held accountable. That's super commendable right there. You know, the, the article for me was was this like moment of pure uh, glee. You know, it was like sort of like everything we've been screaming about, swearing about whatever on Twitter and everywhere else has sort of come to come to light with this sort of article, you know, and it was a huge to see uh, a major organization like National Audubon come out publicly and say, hey, we need to be better and we're going to do our best. You know, they're uh, talking about they're going to they pulled down the historical uh, biography of of Audubon and they're going to replace it with Hmm. a more historically accurate one that talks about how he owned slaves and how he was a huge, huge player in the the colonization game there, you know, like he, he did some really horrible things. A bit of a grifter too. Yeah. A little bit of a grifter, you know, uh, Matthew Halley there, he did a, that article, his, his paper was mind blowing and this all the more poignant, right? This hit at just the right time. You know, maybe it was coincidental. Maybe it was purposeful. Who knows? But (laughs) we can speculate all we want. But this was a big, big move, you know. Um, And I I think that they did a great job with with this article. He said, we won't fix 400 years of oppression overnight, but we can do far more as organizations and as individuals than we thought possible even six months ago. And, you know, we've been hearing so much pushback on this stuff, so much coming from all corners of the world. It's nice to know that the people that are pushing conservation, that are pushing for, you know, equity in the birding world, diversity, all of this, it's nice to know that those folks are willing to stand up and say, hey, we're screwing up here and we need to be better about this. Um, You know, a shout out to Wilson's uh, Ornithological Society as well for doing the same, Mm -hmm. talking about, you know, potentially even changing the name of, their organization if it's becomes if it's necessary you know and i'm gonna say it right out loud i think audubon should pull that name off of there i think i'm anybody be a big (laughs) yeah i I don't know i I don't know i i I don't know if i expect them to remove their name because there's just like so much historical equity like in that name of course but man that the very least they can do is what what they did. I, I think, I think, you know, we both agree they went a little bit further than they needed to. And, um, 
yeah, I mean, that's they they did the right thing. It was it was a good move and uh, well taken. And they, you know, they he they said in the article as well he, that after NAOC, they were going to have another announcement, a follow up. So mm-hmm. I'm sitting here with my uh, hands in my lap, <laughs> keenly waiting to see what what else is going to come out of this. And I think you know we're still waiting for the AOS to to figure their stuff out. They haven't said anything. They've been pretty mm-hmm. vague about what they're going to do. Um, and we're waiting on the AOS and so is National Audubon and so is everyone else. So, uh, Jody, is uh, Birds Canada glad they did not name their organization after a person? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> no, we, I don't think we've actually had that conversation, but no, certainly what a challenge. You know, Birds Canada, that's good, even though we, we've gone through some name changes ourselves. You know, it's interesting to see how Audubon's handling this and, and certainly... You know, I'll I'll commend them for owning some of this past. That's not very that's not really good, and putting it out there. So good on them for doing that and and to trying to do the right thing. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's been very interesting to see. Do you have any thoughts, Jenny? Oh, I have so many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, you said I, I actually jotted this down. You said that you thought maybe Audubon went farther than they even needed to. I don't think they went farther than they needed to. I feel like what they did is Fair was. Enough you know, maybe the minimum of what they could have done. And I, I'm, I think they're doing, I think they're on the right path. And I think that there's a lot more to do. And I think that they recognize that. And I feel like from what I've read and discussions I've had with people at Audubon, they seem to be committed to that, which is fantastic. I also think Sean mentioned, maybe they need to change the name of the organization. And that's such an interesting thing to consider. Because at what point does, I'm thinking about stuff like Kleenex, it stops being a brand and sort of takes on a a life of its own. And I don't know if Audubon is exactly that way. Um, But I think there's, there's a little bit of something there. It's been around and used as an organizational name for so long that it's recognized some level just as, okay, that's bird conservation, not necessarily. That's the group that's named after John James Audubon. Um, But I don't know, that's, you know, maybe a, a really bad argument, something that occurs to me. So, you know, the Audubon response sort of came on the heels of, of another excellent piece put out by um, the Sierra Club talking about John Muir's problematic, um, that's a very gentle way of saying it, problematic background. <laughs> and for me, I mean, the piece with all of this stuff is that we shouldn't be putting people on pedestals. We shouldn't be glorifying yeah. people. It doesn't yeah. mean that we can't say that there are things that John Muir did or that John James Audubon did, or, you know, whoever it is, there, that there are pieces of their history that have had positive contributions on things, but, but we shouldn't be making them into heroes and holding them up as without fault, without blame, yeah. that, that what they did was somehow so important that it's, we can't point out that they also did some really horrible, horrible stuff. Yeah. And, you know, we're in the, we're in the middle of, uh, uh, a political season here in the United States. And uh, that thought, that very thought, like, why are we, you know, putting people on these pedestals in this way has something that has just like been running through my head, <laughs> like through all of this, not even people in the distant past, really people in the relative present too. We have a tendency to kind of, you know, deify them in ways that perhaps they don't necessarily deserve. I mean, we're, we're human beings. We contain multitudes because I, I love public art. So I'm not going to say don't put statues up, but man, let's not make them so specific. <laughs> more, more great Blackhawk statues. Yeah. <laughs> the, pe- the thing for me, so I have this shirt that I, well, it's too hot to wear it now in Tucson, but it's, it says stop glorifying John Muir. 
And I feel like, you know, you can, you got to whatever point you're at in life, learning whatever history you learned and learning whatever stories you were told or you read. And then you got to where you are now and you're hearing this new story and this new history, this more Mm -hmm. complete, more truthful history. And it doesn't mean that you have to look at everything that happened in your life up to this point and say, oh, it's all a lie. But it does mean that you can't, I think it obligates you to go forward telling a different narrative, living your life based on a different narrative and a different history, if that makes sense. It doesn't mean no, you can't say that, oh, well, that that person is horrible. And so I have to negate all of the positive experiences I had over the last 20 years growing up. Um, but it does mean that you can't go forth and say this person is a hero. Yeah, we need to learn to readjust. Mm-hmm. History history is like, you know, it's time is fluid. History is pretty fluid. Like everything, everything has like a natural ebb and flow to it. And we're pretty good at adjusting in those situations, you know, the seasons and the migration and all this stuff. Why, why can't we have the same relationship with historical figures and things like that? Like, why, why are we so stuck? Yeah, that's a great point. Well, in the, I mean, who tells history, who writes history? It's, yeah. written by the victors or the winners or, you know, in our country, mostly by white people, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that shows that that shows that's that's the reckoning. That's what we're that's what we're dealing with right now. 100 percent. I love fall birding. Right. And and I don't think I'm alone. I think it's, you know, arguably it's my favorite. It's season. the it's the birdiest time of year. It really is. Right. And uh and I've always had this, you know, I've always had this sort of confusion as to why are there so few birders out birding in the fall? Like it is nowhere near, and especially, you know, you know, growing up in Ontario and and in birding right across the country, you know, that early spring, early May, you know, there's so many people out birding. But as soon as you get into the mid-August into September, there's just much fewer birders out there. And I've always wondered why that is, because Birding in the fall is amazing. You know, more people should be getting out there birding in the fall. It's, it's, you know, every single day, it's really, really incredible. And there are more birds. Well, that's right. There are more birds. That, this is why it's so good, right? There, there are more yeah. birds. You've got all of those hatch years, all of those young birds are now migrating south with their, with the adults. It's a more protracted migration in the fall, mm-hmm. right? So the, so the birding is, is better and more consistent on a daily basis in the fall. Than it is in the spring. The spring can be really hit and miss. I love fall birding. In the southeast, spring comes on so fast. Like we'll go from, you know, it feels like winter to summer over the course of about a week. And so fall birding, when we have this sort of long, like our fall goes into like November, uh, early December sometimes. And it is just really nice to not feel like I'm going to miss the migration if I have to do something on one day. Is it because there's a perception that fall birding is too difficult? Is that why more people are as excited about birding in the fall? And and one of the things that I've often wondered in in conjunction with this is tied to the confusing fall warbler plates of the Peterson Field Guide series. And you know, there's something I've I've thought about, and, and nice to hear I'm not the only one who thinks this. But yeah, I'm here for this argument. Yeah. You could argue that terming or using the term confusing with those plates may have created a potential barrier for a lot of people. It could have made, you know, those birds seem just too much and too out of reach, you know? And it's funny you would use it 
for those and you wouldn't just use it for the entire section on Impidinax flycatchers. Like that's a little <laughs> bit more legitimate, you know? I will go even further, Jody. And I will say that part of it is that Peterson's illustrations just aren't that good. Oh, man. I'll say it. I'll say it. <laughs> yeah. And like full, res- full respect to Roger Tory Peterson. Like full respect. Father of North American birding, completely legit, but uh, his illustrations aren't great. He's no David Sibley. I'll just say that. So I think, I think he did a lot of groundbreaking stuff. Those field guides especially did a lot of stuff that people have been oh, yeah. emulating and copying and, and obviously influence for, for people like Sibley. I would suggest, you know, uh, like here's my suggestion of how to improve it. It would be, you know, obviously, you know, redo some of the plates could be an option, but even just fixing a name. We talk so much about the importance of, of these names. Mm-hmm. Well, here you go. Here's another example. Why don't you call it something like tricky but doable fall warblers, you know, <laughs> or something that's not just right away putting up that wall of these are confusing before you even start to learn them. Yeah, just- and the plus side is like we don't even have to ask the AOS to do it. There you go. <laughs> well, but see, I was going to tie it back to the thick build. I was going to say Kingbird. Longspur. Uh, conversation, right? Very, very, very Tucson to say right, kind of right. Kingbird. <laughs> so yes, I agree wholeheartedly with everything that's been said. Wouldn't birds be easier to learn if they had names that actually described how they look? Like, what does Connecticut Warbler tell you about what that bird looks like? Literally nothing. Exactly. <laughs> like, n- very, very, no part of its yeah. name. I would say even Warbler is confusing because it's, there are, you know, a handful of families in the old world that are also Warblers. Like, Warbler is not a particularly useful mm-hmm. term. Yep. Yeah, there's nothing about that bird name that tells you what it does. Or helps you exactly. identify it. And you know what? I'm brought back to, I don't know, being in elementary school or middle school when I really struggled at math. And I told myself this story that I'm just not good at math. And so I never tried mm-hmm. to get better at math. And this persisted all through college. Um, and it wasn't honestly until I was in graduate school in my mid-20s taking statistics in the sociology department um, where I realized that it's not that I'm not good at math. It's maybe that math doesn't come as easy for me as other things do. Um, but if I work at it, I can learn it. And I think mm-hmm. that whether it's confusing fall warblers or shorebirds or gulls or, I mean, impidinex flycatchers, some of these things, there's definitely a scale. You know, some things are harder than others. But I feel like we set ourselves up for defeat right from the outset, exactly the way that that Jody is describing it by saying, oh yeah, okay, here's this group and you only are going to get to learn it when you're a really good bird or when you're really skilled. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, yeah, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure and disappointment for no good reason. Fall for me means sparrow season in Connecticut. I absolutely love sparrows. My favorite thing to do is to bring people out, you know, everybody who's like, oh, I can't, I don't know anything about sparrows. I can't tell sparrows apart. I love to bring people to like an empty gravel parking lot where there's a ton of them and just point out the distinctions between them. And suddenly like it opens up this world of like of ID to people who haven't like who didn't know to look for like these slight variations. It, it makes everything so much better. You know, watching that reveal in someone's face is so phenomenal. I love that feeling. So fall is the best fall for yep. sure. I think little, I think the term, you know, little brown jobs are like referring to, you know, groups of sparrows and that term of all, you know, sparrows are difficult because they're all brown and they've, they've acquired that name, I think. And it's a very similar thing as the confusing fall warbler, right? It's just sort of lumping mm-hmm. them all and they're sort of yeah. not worth looking at when really the opposite 
is the case, right? Sparrows are like some of the most beautiful birds we have in North America are, are sparrows, right? Like they're just absolutely can be gorgeous and on, on a subtle level um, in, in some cases for sure. But, you know, you get a, a good close-up view of a grasshopper, you know, sparrow as an example, That's right? Like that is, yeah. there are so many things going on on a grasshopper sparrow. Yeah. Like that is a gorgeous, gorgeous, you know, objective gorgeousness, you know, on that bird. And um, yeah, so just an interesting, another example of, of how a term can create those kind of barriers for people getting out there. People should be watching sparrows and they, they won't regret it. Changing the language, like you guys are saying, is just, I mean, to me, that make, is a no-brainer, right? Like make yeah. birding fun in that respect for the fall. One of the things that this bird names uh, for birds thing has, has done for us is that it's caused us to question a lot of the jargon that we use in birding. And uh, I think it's just productive, like down the line. Like, why do we do this? Why do we do this? Well, if the answer is because that's what we've always done, then that's not good enough. Like, let's, we have an opportunity here to jettison the stuff that's not useful and retain the stuff that is and change the things that aren't. And, and you know, why not, why not take that? Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, for sure. I want to ask you the question of the month. And I was thinking a little bit about this because there was a question on, I don't know if any of you are on the red polling uh, birding Facebook group. There's always such interesting questions that get asked there. What are some really bad bird pronunciation mistakes that you have made or um, you have heard other people make? You don't have to name names. What is a bird pronunciation issue that you have had that you have solved, I suppose? So I'll start. You know, when people mispronounce words, it usually means that it's a word that they've only seen and they haven't said it out loud. Yes. And so I, I think we need to be gentle <laughs> With people mispronouncing things. Mine is not a mispronounced bird name, but it is a mispronounced mountain name because I was so (laughs) focused on birds. But I used to call Mount Tamalpais in Northern California, Mount Tamalipas. Oh, well, as a birder, that makes sense. Yes, well, I was convinced that I was saying it right and everybody else was wrong. And I pushed back a little bit and finally, (laughs) you're just straight up wrong here. It's it's like mostly the same letters, but rearranged, not <laughs> yeah, quite right. the same, and totally different origin. And but I I called it Mount Tamalpais for longer than I care to admit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll jump in. I'll jump in with some. And here here are some personal examples that that I have done. Um, I remember as a kid, uh, I used to say scooter all the time. I used to say you know white wing scooter, surf scooter all the time. I was probably embarrassingly too old to have realized uh, at a certain <laughs> point of like, oh, that there's the, oh, the number of O's. I didn't, didn't realize that. But I think the most, for sure, the one that I think is most embarrassing um, for me is I, I was doing a job interview. I was in my early teens and I was just really getting, getting the birding bug, right? And, uh, and I was doing a job interview for this, a summer naturalist position. And they were, you know, asking all these questions about your level of, and this was in Ontario, about your level of natural history knowledge. And so the question got to birds and I was, you know, priding myself as, you know, a a birder, you know, really getting to know my birds. I started talking about all the, all the warblers that I knew, except I was saying it completely wrong. I was so nervous that I was actually saying wobblers, (laughs) wobblers. Depending on where you are on the continent, like there are some people that actually sound like they're saying that. Yeah. Thank you for that. No, that's very generous of you, Nate. But but in in our part of the continents, yes, no one, no one anywhere close says it like that. Like even no one comes close to that. So yes, yellow wobbler, chestnut sided wobbler, and I could sort of tell, like on the the smirks on the faces, that I may have been something something wrong. And it was right at like 
the end of the interview that it that I realized that I had made this mistake. Anyway, embarrassing, <laughs> obviously, uh, over it is kind of a fun mistake. But there you go. What about you, Sean? So I still like to this day, I, I stutter over so many bird names because I don't get like Jenny was saying, I don't get to say things out loud very often. You know, yes, a group of alcids, the myrrh or myrrh. I like I can't I still have no confidence in saying that word. I, <laughs> I don't believe people when they say it with confidence because I hear it so differently all the time. Maybe it's regional. I'm not positive. And then, you know, plover and plover, like I, I'm just yeah. not confident in, in, in how these are pronounced because they're so like on red polling, the arguments you'll see like two or three pronunciations <laughs> are getting like equivalent votes. And there goes my confidence yet again. Um, most recently, the weird uh, Eurasian explosion in, um, of, of sandpipers in, and stints in Rhode Island the first one that came through was the Tarek. I think I'm saying that right, but that's how I would pronounce it. I'll tell it, you, yeah. I was, you know, one of a lot of people that were standing on that narrow spit, staring at that bird, you know, for probably the first time in a lot of people's lives. And I refused to say it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a, I have a couple. So my first one is a, a certain uh, genus of old world warbler that I have always pronounced as uh, philoscopus or philoscopus until I heard someone uh, pronounce it philoscopus, uh, which totally threw me off. And I, I, to this day, I have no idea which one is right. So I try, as you do, Sean, like try not to <laughs> say it unless I have to. <laughs> but um, the one that I used to do when I was young, and this is, gets to Jenny's point of, uh, of reading the name of a bird and never having the opportunity to say it, is um, the smallest auk in North America, which I now know is Dovekey, but I always pronounced as, uh, for a very long time, as Dovekey. Aww, so. that's so cute. <laughs> so it's, so 13-year-old Nate would have pronounced it Dovekey. So I would just assume change it to Little Ock just to like solve that problem, because I still see it as Dovekey whenever I read it, even though I know to pronounce it as Dovekey. Or do I? I have no idea. You should totally change it. Your way is better. <laughs> Dovekey. <Yeah. laughs> I get mixed up sometimes when, like, it's just the way you hear it and the way you pronounce it, but collared versus colored. It's actually a good solution to that. If you adopt the Canadian spelling of colored, you're not going to make that confusion ever again. So really simple. <laughs> just, again, you, you know, we'll keep contributing, you know, Rush and, and <laughs> OUs and everything else. And add, add the superfluous use to your list of uh, Canadian <laughs> yeah. contributions that, to culture. Does that change and the way done. you say it? No, it doesn't. It does it in my head because I always pronounce it like honor and color, even though I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Superfluous Use is the name of my uh, punk band, by the way. <sighs> har har. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Sean Milnes, Jenny Duberstein, Jody Allaire. You can find them all online on Twitter, on Instagram. I will uh, put all the links to their various places uh in the show notes um thank you to the three of you what a fun discussion uh we'll we'll talk to you talk to you down the road sounds good to me sounds good take care yeah take care everyone nice chatting with you American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources the ABA provides, please consider joining the ABA. 
Um, in addition to helping to support this podcast, you get our magazine. You can also get discounts to partners like Princeton University Press and Cornell Labs Birds of the World. You can get more information about all of that, including learn about our e-memberships at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to Laura Stark of Providence, Rhode Island, Everett Wood of Gross Point Park, Michigan, Michelle Sutton of Highland, New York, and the Cedar Cyan family from Whitewater, Wisconsin, all of whom joined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thanks for that. And welcome. Welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who thinks we would have a lot more records of Vox's Swift in the East had Roger Tory Peterson not called them impossible flying cigars. Technical production is by John Lowry, who definitely respects Roger Tory Peterson's legacy, but really wishes he hadn't called Eclipse plumage ducks insufferable swimming potatoes. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who discovered when researching the famous Chicago mystery Elania that Peterson in his Birds of Mexico just called the whole genus sausage meat in bird form, which I think is a little excessive. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. I had a chance a few years ago to page through a first edition of Peterson's North American Guide, and I was shocked to find that the section on immature exhibitors, it is just a long string of expletives and then a self-portrait of Roger himself weeping into his sleeve. I'm really glad they got that figured out in the second edition. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.